youth service. It's been a little different. I've enjoyed it. Amen. Great worship, great presence of God. Amen. And and we get to the very most important part of any service. And I asked for the opportunity to introduce Rockland this evening. Harrison was going to do it, and I took the job away from him. Uh, and I don't know. He may have had something nice prepared to say. I might should have let him say it. Might have been some relationship healing or something there. But but uh, anyway, I'm here, so that's the way it is. <laughs> I just I like to take a moment and and just let you know that these young men, my my boys, they've been preaching in these youth services, and this is a young man that I know has studied hard has prepared himself. He doesn't take, neither does his brother, take flippantly the opportunity to stand behind this desk and minister the Word of God. It's done with sincerity. It's done with prayer. It's done with study. And a lot of soul searching, a lot of a lot of trying to make sure that, uh, as the preachers in the house know, that you have the thought that God wanted you to have. Because it really doesn't matter what you want to say. It really matters what God wants said. Amen. And God will anoint His Word. And I know from having observed him over the last several days that uh, he, he, he went to uh, Bono yesterday to be a part of a, of a street rage and, and told me, he said, Daddy, if they go out to eat, I'm coming home because I've got to work. I've got to work on my sermon. I've got to work on my thoughts. So I know there's been a lot of sacrifice. There's been a lot of effort. And I believe that in the next few moments, if you will just allow God, he's going to speak a word into your life. It doesn't matter whether you're a young person or a senior citizen. Amen. For all the senior citizens, say amen. Amen. It may be youth service, but the word of God is rich and it ministers to every one of us. So I want to ask you for the next few moments, you just stretch your hands this way and say, God bless Rockland McCall. Amen. Come preach a word to us. Amen. Well, if you'll remain standing for the reading. Of the word, of course. Ain't much else should be read over this pulpit. Uh, we'll be in Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 16. But before we get to that, I want to uh, give a little bit of a hand clap to all the youth people. Because we had two weeks this time, and we still managed to put one together. So uh, I'm proud of them. And uh, I'm proud of myself, too, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Romans 6 and 16 reads, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. You may be seated. I'll be preaching to you today on swords from shackles. In our scripture today, Paul talks of serving sin and serving righteousness. Obviously, the shackles in my title refer to uh, slavery or servitude. So that explains that bit. The sword we'll have to get to later, but to get there... We have to go through the story of a servant to sin. The story I would like to recount today is that of the demoniac of Gadara. I probably should have practiced saying the word demoniac 15 times before this because I'm going to say it a lot today. The Bible tells us his, his tale in Mark chapter 5. But his story begins long before Mark 5 and 1 when Jesus steps into the scene. Long before Jesus showed up in Gadara, the demoniac was simply a normal man. I mean, no one's born demon-possessed. We tend to forget the fact that the demoniac of Gadara wasn't always the demoniac of Gadara. There was one day he was the man of Gadara. Yeah. He was a Gadarene. He was once a child who had loving parents. He probably had a family of his own. 
he, uh, he lived a normal, everyday life until one day he didn't. He messed up. Maybe his friends pressured him into doing something really stupid. Maybe he was tempted on a dark and lonely night. Maybe he was lulled into something while searching for a place to belong. Whatever happened, Satan got a hold of him. This much we know. Now, do you know where we get the word Satan? Satan is not the devil's name. The devil's name is Lucifer. At least that was his name when he was an angel. And instead of a name, Satan is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, Satan. See the similarities? Satan, Satan, same letters and everything. Satan, literally translated, is the enemy. So that's what he is. It's a perfect description of Satan. That's why we call him that. He is the enemy, the enemy of all life. Remember that verse that describes Satan as a lion roaming the earth, seeking whom he may devour? That's the perfect image of Satan's motives. He doesn't just want to trick you and fool you and lie to you to stop you from worshiping God and stop you from walking and living according to his word. He wants everything you have. He wants to eat you alive so that all your thoughts are tainted with sin. While we're on the definition train, do you know the meaning of repentance? I learned this one from Dad, who happened to mention Purpose Institute. Now I'm stealing it from him so he can't preach it later. We all know the Sunday school definition of repentance. It's turning away from sin. Mom would say making a U-turn. And while this is an apt description, it is not the literal definition. When translated literally, repentance means to think differently after. Did you catch that? If you're in sin before repentance and afterwards you think differently, what does that mean? Well, after repentance, when your mind makes the U-turn, you think about things as someone filled with the Holy Ghost. Repentance part of salvation, it is salvation is all in one. And so once you get repentance, eventually you get the Holy Ghost and you start thinking like someone with the Holy Ghost. Your thoughts have this tint of holiness to them and you start thinking about things like God does. If you don't believe me, listen to Paul. In the words of Paul, speaking in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which is also, or which was also in Jesus Christ. That's the King James Version. Let me give you the Rockland translation. When you repent, you start thinking like Jesus. This revelation brings a new viewpoint on repentance. If you think like Jesus afterwards, who did you think like before? Well, when you have repented truly, you become a servant of Christ. This is what we're talking about, right? Servitude. Paul knew this and addressed himself twice in the epistles as Paul, the servant of God. In fact, Paul said in the verse we read earlier that what you do determines who you serve. For those who have forgot already like I have, it reads, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself or to, to whatever you do, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey. So whoever you obey, that's who you serve. Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. That of obedience unto righteousness, that's the post-repentance part. That's the mind of Christ. So according to Paul, not only does what you do determine who you serve, but who you serve determines who you think like. So if you live a life walking with God in holiness, you serve God. Serve God. You think like you serve God, you do the things of God, then you serve God. And if you serve God, you think like God. You get the mind of Christ. This is the point of the verses that we've read so far, but the adverse is also true. 
If you live a life walking in sin, you serve him whose kingdom and domain is sin. He goes by many names. He is prince of the air, the prince of thieves, and the father of liars. His names are Lucifer and the devil. He is Satan or Satan, the enemy. If you sin, you serve Satan. And if you serve Satan, you think like Satan would. Common sense. You serve Jesus, think like Jesus. Serve sin, think like Satan. There you go. The servant will always take up the mindset of the master. So this begs the question, how does Satan think? The Satan mindset, is, if Satan's the antithesis of Christ or the opposite of Christ, then the Satan mindset is the opposite of Christ. Well, how do you think when you're full of Christ? When you're full of the Holy Spirit, you get the, fruits, the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. There's nine of those. I counted eight on my hands. I don't know how that happened. But anyways, there's nine of them. You should all know them because we went over them not too long ago on Wednesday nights. So these are the fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit of the Satan mindset are the antithesis of the fruit. Hatred, heartache, turmoil, short-temperedness, harshness, cruelty, mistrust, pride, and the inability to control yourself. If you don't believe me, look at the demoniac of Gadara. What takes a normal man from his family and his home and drives him to the point of desperation that we find him in when Mark begins to tell his story? Mark describes an insane man forced by his conditions to abhor his family and his home and seek a hermit solidarity among the tombs of the city. He is described in the Gospels as naked, cutting himself and crying, hardly the actions of a normal or sane man. Rather, these, sounds like, these sound like the actions of a demented man, a man full of hatred for both himself and others, a man with no shred of joy left in him, a man for whom there is no peace, a man full of anger, a man who can only deal harshly with others, a man cruel to everyone, including himself, a man who has lost all trust in family, friends, and God, a man consumed with self to the point of abandoning everyone else, and a man unable to control his actions. This man was wholly consumed by the lion whose thoughts were occupied by the Satan mindset and whose life bore the fruit of it. Truly, he was a man without hope. If any of us have ever felt despair or felt cr crushed by the horrors of life, hopefully I don't choke to death. There's no water up here. <laughs> Surely, we have never even come close to the despair that the, man, the demoniac of Gadara must have felt. Until, of course... Two words came along to change it all. These are two of my favorite words, and they are the two words that precede the parting of oceans and the crumbling of mountains, the quaking of the earth, and the outpouring of love at the cross. Those two words are, then Jesus. Yeah. See, then Jesus steps off the boat and right smack dab into his situation. Yeah. Come on, you all know the story. The demoniac of Gadara runs to see, or sees Jesus and starts running and against the will of literally an army of demons, he runs to him. He, Legion is the name that the demons go by. Legion means a Roman army. I'm sure all of you have heard this at one point in your lives because this story is preached to death. But that means they fled into a herd of swine. There was approximately 2,000 pigs. So approximately 2,000 demons were in this man. And this man ran to Jesus. He overcame the will of 2,000 demons and ran to Jesus and bowed down and worshipped him. Now, do those sound like the actions of a guy with a Satan mindset? These are, this is the same guy who was cutting himself earlier, who was naked, running through the tombs of the city. 
No, those sound like the actions of a man thirsting to death who sees a pool of water. Those are the actions of a man entirely consumed by hate, heartache, and turmoil who sees love, peace, and joy incarnate step off a boat and into his problem. But when you're serving Satan as long as he had, you just can't help but run to your true master. And trust me, he'll be there waiting for you. The story continues and the demons weep at their new stroke of misfortune as they bow and tremble at the feet of the master of all creation. They plead for mercy. And Jesus shows it to them. And he sends them into a herd of swine and they run the herd off the cliff. The Gadarenes come to see Jesus and see what all this commotion's about. And they see the demoniac of Gadara restored. And as Mark says, sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Did you catch that? His right mind. See, you fall on your knees before the king of kings and worship. And you start getting a little of your Jesus mindset back real quick. God doesn't need years of deceit and trickery like the devil does. God just speaks and light is born. You remember Genesis 1 and 1? You know, what happens when you make light? Darkness stops. It just, it just stops. There's no process. It ends. Light is born. Darkness dies. When Jesus speaks, the light that is born in you instantly banishes Satan's darkness from your mind. When Jesus spoke to that man's problems, they fled as far and as fast as they could, and he returned to his right mind, his Christ mind. Well, you should have seen the looks on them Gadarenes' faces when they saw that man in his right mind. Obviously, they weren't Christ-minded themselves because rather than praising Jesus for the miracle he had just performed, they pleaded with him to leave. Well, Jesus isn't about to slap anybody into submission. He only takes willing servants. So he submits to their will and gets on the boat and leaves. But as he gets back on the boat, the ex-demoniac looks up and sees him and starts running again. Man, this guy likes just running to Jesus. Something about your first taste of Jesus will keep you running after him like that. When your source of joy and peace starts moving, see, you, you start moving with it. So that's what the gathering man did. He asked Jesus to let him follow him. But then Jesus said no. See, that had to be, that had to be the hardest thing the ex-demoniac of Gadara had ever heard. His master was leaving, and he wasn't allowed to hitch along for the ride. The God who had saved him was abandoning him. These are Mark's words on the matter. Mark 5, 19 through 20 read, Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home unto thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. You see, Sometimes God doesn't need you to cross the sea with him. Sometimes he just needs somebody willing to stay where they are. Sometimes he just needs you to be a missionary to your neighborhood. Sometimes he needs you to tell your neighbors about what God did for you. This is the ministry God called the entire church to, folks. He called every one of us to witness to everyone we know. Why me, you may ask? The same question probably popped into the mind of the ex-demoniac of Gadara. What kind of God sends a man who the, city of, the people of the city knew to be naked and cutting himself and crying all the time, living amongst the tombs, with, sleeping with the dead? Who sends a man like that to go save a city or even ten cities? That's what Decapolis means. Decapolis is the country or region that is defined by ten cities. And Jesus sent this man to save these ten cities. And they knew him as the demoniac. Who would do that? And why, why would Jesus do that? The answer is simple. 
See, only you can tell your testimony. You see, God saved the demoniac of Gadara not only for his own salvation, but for the salvation of everyone he ever converted to the cause of Christ. Even if his testimony never turned a soul, it set a seed for the coming gospel that would be spread after Jesus' death. The gathering that Jesus saved became a servant of the Lord and did the work of the Lord in Gadara as only someone who had been a slave to sin could. This brings us to the story of another slave. Unlike the demoniac of Gadara, we know his name. He has become a hero in the, and the, uh, the hero of the underdog in pop culture. His story is portrayed in novels and movies bearing his name. His name was Spartacus. Spartacus was born in Thrace. This is a rebellious region of northern Greece. And historians believe that he served in the Legion Auxiliary. This is the, during the Empire of Rome. This is actually in 72 AD before Jesus ever stepped onto the scene in the Gadaran and the Gadarenes' life. Spartacus was born in Thrace and joined the Legion Auxiliary and was likely sold into slavery after committing a crime. It is then that he was purchased and taken to a gladiatorial school to be trained to fight in the Roman Colosseum. Generally, if you were a slave and you were strong and you knew how to fight, that's where you ended up. Spartacus and his fellow slaves rebelled then against their masters at the school and fled, inciting slaves, slave rebellions along their way and swelling their numbers. This began the Third Servile War, or mass slave rebellion, in Roman history, and it was to be the bloodiest one yet. The rebelling slaves sought refuge on Mount Vesuvius, which became a rallying point for slaves across Rome who were rebelling against their owners and spurred by Spartacus. Spartacus's success. That one I should have practiced also. It was on Vesuvius that Spartacus and his army gained their first victory, inciting an even greater and more widespread reaction among the slaves that were the backbone of Roman life at this time. Spartacus's army at its height numbered approximately 30,000 men strong. This, by our standards today, seems like nothing, but in Roman times, that could have been as much as a quarter of the population of Rome. As his, army, as his army grew, Spartacus scrambled for weapons to arm them. When you have an army this size, you don't have enough weapons. You don't have uh, as many blacksmiths as the Romans do, and you haven't had years to make them. But the blacksmiths he did have started making weapons. Where did they get the iron, you might ask? I mean, you need iron to make a sword, iron to make a spear. Everything that you use to stab someone with, you sort of need iron. Where did they get this iron? Well, what marks every slave? Chains. The chief source of weapon-grade iron for the Spartacus Rebellion were the instruments of slavery that had bound the people of that rebellion. Are you getting this now? Because this, this is cool. The very tools that bound these people to their masters, the very trappings of slavery, shackles and chains were melted down into weapons for the rebellion. The things that had held them down, kept them oppressed, and marked them as property became swords in their hands to fight back against their captors. Now, do you get it yet? Because there's something about this physical and carnal tale that mirrors the tale of the demoniac of Gadara. The demoniac was no slave to men. Neither could he, was, or neither could he be bound by chains. He had no chains on him. People, Mark said, people even tried to chain him up, but he always broke free. Instead, you see, the slavery of the demoniac of Gadara was entirely spiritual. The demoniac was a slave to sin and to Satan. 
He had no control over himself, but had served sin so long that it controlled him. His members moved at the command of a legion of demons, and his thoughts were those of a Satan mindset. Then those two words came onto the scene, as we talked about earlier, then Jesus. You see, Spartacus' soldiers were slaves of men, bound by physical chains, and they needed iron swords to fight back with. But the demoniac of Gadara was a spiritual slave, and he was bound by spiritual chains. He needed a spiritual weapon with which to fight the powers of darkness who had so long controlled him. The demoniac's sins laid upon him with the weight of a slave's chain. They bound his hands and feet like shackles. No man could chain him, but Satan had with years of debauchery and ungodly living. Guilt bound him to those chains stronger than any cuffs of iron could. Satan, his taskmaster, punished him ruthlessly, tormenting his mind to the point of attempted suicide. Satan so controlled him that he wouldn't even let him die to escape his condition. Then Jesus steps off a boat. The demoniac picks up a lifetime of sins and bears them up on his shoulders so that he can run to, the, to his true master. He gets there and falls on his knees to praise a God he had forsaken. And Jesus does as only he can do. He takes every chain and every shackle and breaks them off the man. Now that song is uh, coming back to me now because I'm sure the Gadarene man heard the sound of some clinking of iron when those chains fell off of him. If the musicians would come. Now it wouldn't be a wonderful story if it ended right there. But it doesn't. Jesus doesn't just break the chains off the man. Jesus is good at breaking chains. He does that very well, but that's not, all, that's not where he stopped. You see, Jesus took those chains, and he threw them over his own shoulders. They rattled and clanked as they joined the ranks of every chain and every sin that had ever and would ever bind humanity to slavery. Then Jesus leaves and crosses the Sea of Galilee to continue his ministry. Soon he is in prison and unjustly tried, and the multitude of chains upon his shoulder are joined by a cross. On the hill called Golgotha, the cross is raised to bear the weight of humanity's sins and its sinless Savior. It is on that cross that the master blacksmith performed the greatest reforging in all of history. In the heat of his persecution, the shackles that Adam bound to every generation after his were melted down. And with each stroke of the whip... The master beat each link of each chain into a weapon. With each drop of blood, he cooled his creations. There on that cross, Jesus took the instruments of every man's slavery and forged them into something new. Each shackle became a sword. We return to that point of salvation for the demoniac of Gadara, and we see Jesus as he took the spiritual chains from the man and set him free from slavery. Here we see the Lord of all time reach to the cross and pull out the chains of sin that abound the demoniac. We see him turn to the Gadarene and hand him his chains once more. This time, however, the chains are no longer shackles of sin, but a sword of testimony. He then gives his newborn spiritual soldier his marching orders. Go tell everybody you know what God did for you. In other words, go take what used to hold you down and use it to battle the darkness that's still in your city, if you would stand.
Friend, you don't have to be demon-possessed. You don't have to be a demoniac living in the tombs to be bound by sin. God is waiting for you to run to him and hold up your chains. Put them in his hands and receive your sword of testimony. There's a lost world out there who's waiting on you to use it to save them. Why do you stand there bound, church? These altars are open to all who are willing to come and surrender their chains. Come and lay your burdens down. He will take them from you and forge them into your sword of testimony.